Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Good to see Jimmy Sliwa finally up in the front row here. Well done, man. Um, you guys doing good? Yeah. yeah. Sound a little bit like you're still in a turkey coma from Thanksgiving. You know, like it's bad enough that you have to eat turkey on Thanksgiving. You should quit eating it um, once Thanksgiving's done because it just puts you back to sleep over and over and over again. Um, hey, we're in the last of our series today, but I want you to know I'm pretty excited. The past few weeks as we've been making our way through this series, I've referenced some, you know, not so great events that have happened, like the collapse of the Shelter Logic shelter on top of my car, you know, those kinds of things. But this morning, this morning, um, I was downstairs. I had already showered. I shower at least once a week. It's usually Sunday mornings for you. Um, and I was downstairs, fully dressed, ready to go for the day, just kind of looking over my notes, sitting on the couch. One of my dogs was sitting beside me on the couch, and I heard this noise. Yeah. I was like, oh, no. And just as I turned to launch the dog across the room, um, like a fire hose. It's probably still being cleaned up at my house right now. Um, And did not hit me. I, I was like, The Lord is with me today, so I'm on fire. We're ready to go. Um, I already know God's on my side. Um, uh, Not that I would have changed clothes, but still, it did not get on me, and I was, I thought you'd be happier for me than you actually are. I'm a little bit discouraged about that. Um, We're uh, jumping into the last in the series. Next week, we kick off our Christmas series, so invite both your friends um, out next Sunday uh, and invite them to the first service or the third, because there's no room left in this one. Um, But next week, we kick off our Christmas series. Today, though, we're wrapping up asking for a friend, wise answers to difficult questions from the book of Proverbs. Remember, Proverbs is a book of principles, not necessarily promises, although there are promises in the book of Proverbs. But as you're reading through it, this is wisdom literature. It is application-driven, and it's principle-driven. And today's title is Hoarders. I apologize if you are one or you've been on an episode of the show, uh, but we're going to be dealing with where the hoarder mentality comes from because our topic is greed and generosity. Which, interestingly enough, I've had a few different people reference um, uh, a bit of a quandary in their mind about this topic and last week's topic. Last week, I'm sure you remember everything I said, but just as a refresher, we talked about wealth and poverty. 
Um, and, and I've had several people say, well, isn't this kind of redundant? Now we're talking about greed and generosity, but it actually isn't the same thing at all. In fact, greed or generosity are actually equal opportunity. You could be greedy and poor. You could be greedy and wealthy. You could be generous and poor, generous and wealthy. This is actually an issue that goes much deeper than whether you have resources or not. Because whether you have resources or not, you could choose to be greedy or you could choose to be generous. So I'm going to be asking three questions today. The first one is this. Can I be greedy if I'm giving consistently? Can I be greedy if I'm always giving away to others? That's a good question. I know. That's why I would put it up there. The second one is this. Is there a difference between greedy and frugal? Here's the third one. Can I be too generous? Can I be too generous? Now, Jesus actually has a lot to say about this particular topic. In particular, he drives at where does greed come from? And we're going to be looking at that in a few moments. But on one particular occasion, Jesus has been teaching and preaching, and he receives an invitation to go to someone's house for dinner. And so Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 42, as Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. Isn't that nice? Like Jesus, it's, it's so great to, to be here with you, to hear you. I'd like to spend more time with you. I'd like to invite you to my house to eat a meal. And we're not told whether the man's motivations were uh, selfish or whether the man's motivations were just generous. We're just told that he extends the invitation to Jesus, and Jesus says yes. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Now, uh, maybe a better word here, um, rather than amazed, some translations say astonished, but you could actually say appalled. He was appalled that Jesus just sat down to eat without going through the hand-washing ceremony. How many of you think it's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat? By a show of hands, I'm watching you, David. Okay, good. Um, uh, you feel like I can just tell you this. My mom thinks it's a brilliant idea. And in fact, my sister got her this soap dispenser that says, Jesus and germs are everywhere. So, like, like, I dare you to go eat at my mom's house and not wash your hands before you sit down. There could be 37, she's right here, by the way. There could be 37 people in the house, and she knows if every single one of you have washed your hands or not, because you ain't sitting down at that table until you did. And I, you can't get away. I like, sometimes I'll just like, just to test, I'll squirt the soap dispenser into the sink but not put the soap on my hands. I'll go out and she'll be like, I smell, I smell dirty hands. No, she doesn't. That's an extreme. But like, she was a nurse, nurse practitioner, like washing your hands is a big deal in, in my house because Jesus and germs are, are everywhere. This guy's appalled that Jesus doesn't wash his hands. But you need to understand something culturally, what's happening here, because he's not talking about washing your hands to get the germs off. In fact, um, and this is Jewish custom to this day in Orthodox homes, but every home will have a basin, and then they will have a pitcher for a hand-washing ceremony or ritual or habit. And it's actually taken from an Old Testament passage that has nothing to do with the everyday average person. It actually has to do with the priest operating in the temple. I could go into a whole bunch of details about why they think this hand-washing ceremony is important, but you just need to understand it doesn't have anything to do actually with your hands being 
clean in the no bacteria sense. But every home would have this basin and this pitcher, and the pitcher had to have two handles on it because the ceremony in the morning and any time you were breaking bread required that the hand that was impure doesn't touch the same handle as the other hand. And so you could pick it up with this hand, wash this one, and then put it down, and this one is still clean to touch because this hand had touched the other one, and you could pour it on here. And so they would have the pitcher and then the basin. In the morning, when you got up, you were supposed to wash your hands ritually wash your hands. In fact, in the morning, you would do it with a closed fist, which meant the water doesn't get inside to like clean anything off. There's a whole bizarre, really bizarre set of teachings around why this was really important, which actually have nothing to do with the scriptures. It's actually all additional rabbinical law that was added afterwards. It was fences that were put in place to keep you from crossing the fences that somebody else had put in place to keep you from crossing the fences that God had actually put in place. Because we love to put additional fences so that you don't actually get to the one that God set, hoping that that will keep you from breaking the law. And so they created all of this law. In fact, if you were to listen to teachers to this day teach on this particular ceremony, this hand-washing ceremony, um, they will go for hours talking about all of the rules and regulations. In the morning, you couldn't move more than six feet away from your bed before you washed your hands. And the reason was because at night when you went to sleep, your spirit left your body, went to the other world, um, and your body was um, primarily dominated by impurity in the night. And you also may have like accidentally touched unclean places or something while you were sleeping, you know. And, and then, and by the way, that includes your hair on your head. And so, so then in the morning, you need to, so you just took the pitcher and you poured it one, and he took this side one. He did that three times over each hand, and then you were ready to go for your day because your hands were clean. But the mealtime was a different, you held your hand open, you held it kind of elevated like this, and you would take the pitcher and you would pour it over your hand, and some said you had to do it once on each hand, some said three times, one, two, three, and then one, two, three. It just depended on which tradition you had grown up in. But here's what you need to know, before you did that, you had to clean your hands. So if we're dealing with bacteria, that part had already been taken care of. What this guy is upset with Jesus about is he's not doing what the rabbis said you were supposed to do when you sat down to eat. And Jesus is actually not doing it for a really specific reason. He's actually addressing these additional laws that you could perform all of these things, and if you did them right, then you could judge people who didn't do them right, but what it ultimately was was self-righteousness. And Jesus says, I'll have no part of it. And so he deliberately shows up. His hands are clean, but he's not going to perform the ceremony in order to appease everyone else so that they think he's a good guy. So then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of a cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy. This guy's thinking like, I wish I had never invited him to dinner. Like, Inside, you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over. He immediately drives at the heart. He's not saying the exterior is entirely unimportant. He's just saying it's the wrong place to start, and you've neglected the inside altogether. You're just performing for each other. Which brings me to the question, what separates the greedy from the generous? I'm so glad you asked. 
I would say there's actually three things. There's three degrees of separation between the greedy and the generous. Means, mindset, and motivation. I want to dig into these because the question is, um, can I be too generous? And I would say that depends on what you mean by your definition of generous. Because it is possible that you could be so generous to someone or something and actually neglect your own family. In fact, I heard a story just this past week of a pastor's kid who grew up in a home where his dad gave away so much that they literally had nothing at home to the point of malnutrition. And he did it, in his estimation, strictly so that other people would know how generous they were to appear generous and yet neglected his own family. You could give stuff away to a whole bunch of places out here and actually have nothing left for your primary responsibilities here, and that wouldn't be considered generous to them. You'd have to be responsible to care for them also, which brings me to means. You can't give what you do not have. I'm routinely astonished at our capacity to use up all of our resources. Anybody else? Is it just me? Like, am I the only one here who's sort of wired to like, how much do I have? And how much can I spend? It's the same amount. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more if we have a credit card. <laughs> Here's a definition of means. It's the resources or the capability. I actually have something that I can give away. Now, this could be time, it could be energy, it could be financial resources, it could be material things, it could be any number of things, but in order to give something away, you actually have to have it in your possession, which means you can't suck it all up. The, the, the contrast would be, have you stored up some? Do you have energy left? Do you have time left? Do you have material things left? Do you have financial resources left? So that when the opportunity presents itself, you can be generous to those who are in need, stored up or sucked dry. Now, in Proverbs um, chapter 30, the illustration of a leech is given. Anybody ever had a leech on them? I know some of you in the room are old enough that they were still doing bloodletting back in the day. Um, <laughs> so, so here's what Proverbs, uh, I'll just stop there. Proverbs 30, the leech has two daughters, and they cry out, more, more. There are three things that are never satisfied. No, four that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the thirsty desert, and the blazing fire. The fire, if you don't keep feeding it more wood, it's going to go out eventually, but it's not going to continue to blaze or provide heat unless you keep putting wood into it. The, the desert, it actually, uh, rain will come on the desert, but the desert will actually suck it all into the ground and still be a desert after it came. It will dry out and become arid all over again. The barren womb, someone who cannot have children yet longs for children, they will always be longing for children, or the grave never says, that's enough death, I'm okay, I'm satisfied. And he's likening this to us. I'll never forget, um, uh, for many years, I've shared this with you before, it's not an exaggeration to say that as a family, because of what we had chosen to do in vocational ministry, it was lacking a lot of vocational peace because it didn't provide any money. Um, like we were literally living hand to mouth. Many of you have been in that same situation before where you're praying for bread 
eggs, peanut butter, and jelly, right? Like, Lord, you need to provide these things or we don't have these things. In fact, we were just talking about it again last night, my son and I, as we were sitting and chatting, and, and he just said, and those are still some of my favorite memories, that season of life where we were dependent on the Lord for everything that we needed. But I'll never forget when I got offered the position here at Church on the Rock as the youth pastor back in the day. And David sent me the salary package, which I had never had a salary package. And, and, and so I was like, this is no exaggeration. What am I going to do with all that money? Now, you have to understand, when I was a kid, which wasn't that long ago, doctors made $60,000 a year. What could anyone do with that much money? And I remember when David sent me the salary package, he offered me $5,000 a year. I'm not just kidding. It was, it, was, it was more than that. But it was the most I had ever made. And, and I remember seeing the number and thinking, what am I going to do with all that money? You can judge me because I actually don't care anymore. I've been here 10 years, and I know you too. So uh, I, this is no exact. It was dial-up internet at that time. Uh, so, and I started to search for how much I'd always wanted a Hummer. <laughs> I got to find something to do with all this money. I'm here for like a month, and my thought is, how does anyone live on this much money? Right? Like, like we have an insatiable appetite for all the things that we want. We can suck it all up and expend all of it on ourselves. We are never satisfied. It's the tendency of the flesh. I've shared with you sort of the exercise that Kitri would do with our girls at the grocery store. I don't know whose brilliant idea it was to not just have grocery stores and other stuff stores. Instead, they created Fred Meyer. So it's not like I just have to say no to the stuff in the candy aisle or at the checkout. My girls are like, can we go over and look at Barbies and scooters and $10,000 items? Like, they're all in the same place. I don't know whose idea it was. It was dumb, in my opinion. But my girls' wanters go off whenever we're in a store. Not mine, of course. That's only when I look at hunting catalogs. But whenever we're in the store, and so Kitri would have this exercise with them. Girls, you got to stop for a moment and ask the question, do I just want this or do I need this. It's a different way of thinking. And when our wanter rules our lives, we will devour all the resources we have available to us. We are never satisfied. Now, Jesus is teaching on one particular occasion, and I'm glad we don't have this practice in our churches today, at least not most of the time. Like, as he's teaching, somebody yells out from the crowd, Jesus! I need you to fix something for me. So here it is, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Can you imagine? You're just preaching along and one of you hollers out, Hey, can you tell my husband to quit buying so much junk? Like, you know we're doing something here. Like, <laughs> I have ADHD. Now I have no idea what we're even talking about anymore. But Jesus clearly does not deal with that. He just... He just stops. It's never an interruption to him. It's an opportunity to him. And so here's what he says. Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And then he told them a story. Jesus is like the master of 
storyteller. And so Jesus says, so there was this rich guy. And he was so blessed. Not only was he already wealthy, but everything he put his hand to turned to gold. He would plant crops and they would multiply more than he could ever consume on his own. And so he thought to himself, what am I going to do with all of this excess? And he says, I know what I'll do. I've built barns to store enough for me, but what I'll do is I'll tear those barns down and I'll build bigger barns so that I can store more than enough for me. I know what I'll do. I'll invest in more stocks. I, I know what I'll do. I have excess. Here's what I'll do. I'll invest in more properties. I, I know what I have excess. What I'll do is buy more cattle, which means I'll need more land and more feed to take care of them. But he doesn't stop to ask the question, even for a moment, maybe I should do something else with the excess. I built barns that are big enough, but now I have so much. How could I keep all of it for myself? And Jesus, being the master storyteller, what I would expect Jesus to do in this moment is really um, to give some sort of illustration like this. He built bigger barns for himself, but then a fire came through and burned the barns to the ground, and he lost all of it anyways. Or, or property values plummeted, and all those investments disappeared like that. Or a blizzard came through, and all of the cattle that he had bought got killed, and God taught him a lesson. But that's not the story that Jesus tells because he's making a different point. Because I would tend to think, oh, he lost all of it, like Job lost all of it, but he could get it all back. In the end, he could have twice as much. Maybe he had insurance on the cattle or insurance on the barns, and he's going to get all of that stuff back. Or maybe he can just get to work and have a side hustle also, and he could make all of that back. Jesus tells a different story, though, about this man. He doesn't say that he lost all the stuff. He says... He lost his life. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not be rich in relationship to God. He's making a contrast. He's saying, to not be rich in relationship to God, which will inform how you use your wealth, by the way, to not be rich towards God and to store it all up for yourself is a foolish thing to do. And what he says is this night the man dies. So he cannot earn it back. He cannot make it back. He actually is going to enter into eternity. It doesn't say that God's doing it as a punishment. It just says it's his time, and he didn't know when his time was. So he was building bigger barns to hold on to all of his stuff instead of being generous with his stuff. He was hoarding his stuff, and the reality is that when he's dead and gone, he's not taking any of it with him. And so the question is, who's going to spend it, and how are they going to spend it? You don't get to control that, but you didn't use it. You didn't expend it to bless others and bring glory to God, to expand God's kingdom. And so in this moment, he doesn't lose his stuff. He loses his life, and he enters into what he was actually created for, and there's nothing stored up there for him. That's the story that Jesus tells. And then he moves into this conversation with his disciples. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? 
And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, which, by the way, seems like a pretty big thing to me, like, if I worried, I could increase the length of my life. He says, even if you can't accomplish a little thing like that, then what's the use in worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. Notice he doesn't say don't save. He doesn't say uh, don't store up like the ant does, right, to set some aside for the future, to work when it's time to work. He's not addressing any of that. He's actually addressing two things. Don't worry about it. Don't let it consume you. And secondly, don't get your priorities out of alignment. Seek first God and his kingdom, and that will inform everything else about how you use your resources. We all have a tendency to want to hold on to as much as we can, and he's inviting you to reconsider what that looks like, that you could store it someplace where it cannot be corrupted. So he says, don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives the Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven, and the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it, and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. He's saying this man's going to build bigger barns to hold on to everything here because what he values is what he has here. What he values is holding on to it here. What he values is his own ability to provide for himself, to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. But he's not dependent on the Lord, but he could put it in barns that are in heaven that will never burn down. He could store it someplace where it will always be protected. Where do you want to invest? In this blink and a breath of a life or in something that will last forever? So is there a difference between being greedy and being frugal? Well, that depends on if you ask a Dutch person or not. My wife is Dutch uh, through and through. The saying is, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Um, but Dutch people are renowned. The way you know if someone is, is Dutch is if their name starts with D something or Van something. Van Andel, De Vos, De Cruyff. You know, those are Dutch folk, and Dutch people are so frugal. We were just down visiting my in-laws. My father-in-law, um, I'm, I'm amazed every time I'm at their home, they lived in the same home forever, raised 11 children in a home the size of this platform right here. Not that part, just like 11 kids. They all just slept on top of each other, stacked all the way. I mean, he, he was so frugal. In fact, um, you learn certain lessons when you have 11 kids and nine of them are girls, so like the, the hair dryer in the bathroom is actually connected to the wall by a lanyard <laughs> so no one can walk off with it. In the shower are industrial soap dispensers like at a hotel. The toilet paper dispenser is one of these, you know, like it's absolutely incredible, but so frugal. And, and that's the only way they could have made it on a teacher's salary raising 11 kids and provided everything that they needed 
in their home, but there's a thin line between often what we call frugal and what you call greedy. It's all about mindset. When does the I cannot, I don't have the resources to actually mean I will not? I could, but I'm not going to. And it brings me to scarcity versus abundance. In fact, if you were to listen to teachers and self-help and motivational and wealth generation and those kinds of things, you'll hear this referenced often, but it's actually a very biblical concept. The scarcity mentality versus the abundance mentality or a poverty mentality versus an abundance mentality. And at the bottom of it all, the scarcity mentality says this, there is never enough. But an abundance mentality says there is more than enough. In fact, culturally right now, this entire generation is being led to believe that there are a handful of wealthy people in our world or in our country or in our community, and they've sucked up the majority of the resources so there's not enough left for you, which is actually socialist thinking or communist thinking. It's treating wealth like water. There's only so much on the planet, and so we have to disperse it, or it has to be dispersed evenly for everybody to get some. But wealth actually isn't like that. It can grow exponentially, but this idea is how you push people towards giving up their resources because there's not enough to go around for everybody. But it actually isn't true. It's a scarcity mentality. There's never enough versus there's more than enough. And so here's what it plays itself out like if you want to have an idea of comparisons. A scarcity mentality is always competing for resources. There's only so much. I got to get mine. I got to get it before you do, or I got to get it from you, but it's competitive in its nature versus a abundance mentality is collaboration. There's enough for both of us. Let's get to work together and see what we can do and create something. A scarcity mentality, this is interesting, is rooted in desperation. If there's not enough, I got to get after it. Okay, I don't know where it all went, but I can't get it. It's a desperate way of living versus a confident way of living. No, there's more, and I can get after it. Scarcity says, I got to mistrust you because you could take from me. And if you do, then I don't know where I'm going to have enough from versus a trusting mentality. A scarcity mentality is hoarding, keeping all of it for ourselves versus an abundance mentality. No, I can share because there's going to be more. Our needs will be met. In a scarcity mentality, and this is interesting, you end up blaming everyone else for the situation that you find yourself in. They took it all. That's why there's none left. Uh, for me, versus an abundance mentality where I just take responsibility. If there's more than enough, then it's my job to get after it. I'm not just talking about money, you know. It's actually a very biblical idea when it comes to the grace of God. Is there more than enough available? Or is there only so much? And you've spent it all now, and God doesn't have any more grace for you. He ran out. There was only this much available for you, and you squandered your portion, and so now you can't get any more. That's a scarcity versus an abundance mentality. Or when it comes to time or material things or financial things, you're sort of being conditioned to view the world as though there wasn't enough for everyone, and yet we serve a God who declares he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the earth is his, and all the fullness thereof, that he has more than enough, even material resource, to meet all of your needs. That's what we say we believe. That's an abundance mentality. 
So we talked about this proverb last week, and I want to revisit it again. Proverbs 23, verses 4 through 5. Then don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. I want to replace get rich with a different phrase because we all think rich people are bad, especially if they live north of, you know, Richmond. Uh, Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich or don't wear yourself out trying to gain wealth. Be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. Last week after service, we, I talked about this verse, and then um, I know all of you remember it because you never forget anything that's said on a Sunday. Um, but we went to Chapo's or Cheapo's, I never know which one it is, um, uh, last Sunday with my family, and then we were leaving. As we were leaving, we looked across the road, and there was an eagle sitting up in a tree. And I, I just thought about this passage and then my shelter logic shelter and all the ones that blew away last year. And I thought they all sprouted wings like an eagle and just flew away. In particular, in the valley, stuff has a tendency to do that with the wind. Like there when you're trampoline, it sprouted wings like an eagle. And now it's in someone else's tree in another neighborhood, right? Like stuff can just disappear like that. Stuff that costs you money or time or investment can just disappear like that. He says, don't wear yourself out chasing all of those things because you also have limited resources when it comes to your time and your energy. Where are you going to spend them? I'll make this observation. I think it's important. Greed is rooted in a scarcity mentality. In other words, greedy people aren't simply selfish. They're scared. That's, that's what it boils down to. I'm afraid there won't be enough. It's why Jesus so often is saying, don't be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid, dear children. Your father has everything that you need. Because scarcity, right? Greed is rooted in a scarcity mentality. Greedy people aren't simply selfish. They're actually afraid. We're actually afraid that there won't be enough. That's why in Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy person is described as one who stirs up strife. But the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. They stir up strife because greedy people are in competition. There's only so much. I got to get mine, which creates tension and strife rather than abundance. This brings me to the last question. Can I be greedy if I'm giving constantly? It's an interesting one because you would think if I'm giving stuff away, ergo, I am generous, but that isn't true. In fact, um, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, and this is what he has to say in Luke chapter 11, verse 37. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. I love this. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. For those of you who don't know the concept of tithing, right? there's this Old Testament command, which I actually think is just a starter, a primer for the pump, where God says, like, you'll feel this, but you give 10% of your increase to the Lord, and you would bring it to the temple, and they would give it. And it was a law in the Old Testament. Here's the problem with tithing being a law in a New Testament world, and it's that I could actually fulfill the law and still be greedy. In fact, the Pharisees were the masters. They always gave their tithe. I'm guessing they're doing a whole lot better than a lot of us. 
Like they always fulfilled the command, even down to a tenth of their herb garden seeds. Like they, and they were giving regularly and yet were filled with greed and envy and strife. Because what the law does is let you off the hook. Lord, you just tell me how much I have to give. I'll do that. You'll bless me. We'll be all good. Because motivations, motivations matter more than you think. In fact, motivations are what God is looking at in the heart when he deals with these kinds of topics. Two people could give the exact same amount of money, the exact same percentage of their money, and one could be greedy and one could be generous. I can't tell you which is which, but he can because he looks at the heart. So in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, this is what he has to say. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. I know it's hard to imagine a scenario in which someone would be like, I'm going out to give. You're invited to come with me. I'm about to be super generous. Let's go watch me. Right? Whatever the excuses were, like I'm modeling something for the people. I want the people to see what I'm doing. Whatever the excuses were, Jesus put his finger on the heart issue. You were doing it to be seen by men. Here's what he's not talking about. He is not talking about coming up front and dropping something in the basket. He's not talking about whether people know that you gave or they don't know that you gave. He's talking about your reasons for giving. In fact, later he will praise the widow who goes out in front of everyone and puts her offering in, and they know how much she put in, right? Because he's actually dealing with an issue of the heart, not the way in which you did your giving, but the motivation for it. And then he goes on, but when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. Man, we could do the same thing that the religious leaders of Jesus' day did. We could turn this into a new law. All right, when you give, put your right hand behind your back. Use your left hand because it's clean and your right hand isn't. And don't let that right hand see what the left hand's doing and make sure nobody else sees either. Like it's not about any of those things. He's talking about the motivation of our hearts. Are we giving to be seen by others? Which brings me to the distinction between selfish and sacrificial. Selfishness says, I'm giving because I want to receive. But a person who is generous or sacrificial is saying, I'm giving because I already have. Receive. This is actually just a response, not a veiled expectation. Lord, I don't know if you noticed, but I just gave a bunch, and I did it because you promised you would bless people who give. It's a recognition that I've already been given more than I could ever deserve, and I've been given it eternally. And as a response to that, man, how could I not? 
at, at the risk, and you already know the story, so I guess it's really not a risk, but at the risk of blowing my own trumpet in the synagogue, this is not my reason at all, but you need to understand the reason my family got involved in adoption and foster care, we got involved because it made the most sense in the world to me because the sovereign God of all the universe had adopted me into his family. Like, like he's like, you're an orphan. I, I know who your dad is, not this one. That's my biological dad. I, it, I know who's after you. And I want you to know I'm going to bring you into my family. And I'm going to give you an inheritance in my family. In fact, it's the same inheritance I'm going to give to my own son, my natural son. I'm going to bring, and it just made the most sense in the world to me that we would say yes to this because we had already received it from him. It's not in hopes of getting something from him. And that's actually the place. That's the place that generosity is birthed from, is gratitude. It's recognition. It's why Jesus, when he goes to the cross, he goes to the cross for the joy set before him. He's not going to the cross in hopes of getting something. We're told in the scriptures that he has already been given all authority. He already knows where he came from. And he knows where he's going to. He knows all things have been entrusted to his hands. And so because of what he has already received from the Father, he is willing to sacrifice in the temporary so that you also could experience the benefits of that. That's what sacrifice looks like. It's giving because I've already received, not in order to receive. So Proverbs 23, verses 6 through 7, describes what it's like to be around people who are giving in order to receive. Don't eat with people who are stingy. In fact, that's the first question my wife and I ask when we go to somebody's house for dinner. We just need to know. Cancel that invitation, honey. I'm like, don't eat with people who are stingy. Don't desire their delicacies. They are always thinking about how much it costs. Eat and drink, they say, but they don't mean it. They're watching you. All the appearances would be, I just want to bless you. We're going to have filet mignon. I'm wrapping it in bacon. It's aged, smoked bacon. Like, and we're going to have bacon-wrapped dates. We're going to have creme brulee, no veggies. Like, it's going to be the perfect meal for you, red skin potatoes roasted. Like, it's going to be so good. I just want to bless you. But they don't want to bless you. What you don't know is while you're eating it, they're tallying up the bill, and you actually owe them in their minds now. That's what greed looks like. And the truth is, we've all experienced it at some level. That time when somebody's at my house and I'm like, you're going to drink the last one? You're going to eat the last one? Don't you know what kind people do? And they're like, oh, wait, I invited you over. Right? We all have a tendency towards this. This isn't about those people out there. It's about the person that tries to live in here. He says, listen, you don't want to be any part of that, which brings me to the last piece. It all goes back in the box. When the game's over, everything, or at least it's supposed to go back in the box. It never happens in my house. I come home routinely, and there are 37 games out on the living room floor, none of which are being played at that particular moment. But anybody else, is it only in my house? Um, okay, great. Um, uh, whatever. Uh, you know the game Life? 
Anybody ever played the game Life? You can raise your hand. It's okay. I give you permission. Good. Okay. Uh, and, and so we've been playing the game Life a few times over the years. It's really, I think, a challenge for smaller kids because they're like, why would I want a bunch of children in my car? Um, I don't even want to get married. Um, this is weird. Um, and they have all kinds of great conversations. But it's actually about like making decisions in life to go to college or not to go to college, to take this job or that job, and how much can you collect by the end of life. But when the game is over, it doesn't matter whether you won the game or you lost the game. It all goes back in the box, which is true for you and I. God isn't being cruel to the rich man when he says your life is accounted of you today. He's just saying today's the day. It's coming for all of us at some point. You don't know when. I don't know when. I actually don't have full control over that, but he knows when. And it's actually a shame to him that this is that day as this man is hoarding all of his stuff. He's like, you could have stored it somewhere else. You could have stored it in a place that was eternal, that would last forever, because when this life is done, it all goes back in the box, but there's some places you could invest that it actually will remain forever available to you and I. And the question he's asking is, can you think bigger? Can you think further out? So many of us pride ourselves on being future thinkers about what we're investing for the future, but this is eternal thinkers. This is like, what am I investing for a place that I'm going to spend all of eternity? Because when all's said and done, nobody gets to the end of this life and says, wow, that was way too long. <laughs> I know you think that lots of days during your life, but when the moment's coming, you're like, just one more day, just one more chance to say I love you, just one more opportunity. But now's the moment and, and this is it. And Jesus is inviting you to think bigger, to think broader than all of the petty things that we get wrapped up in right here and now. Greedy people aren't simply selfish. They're actually afraid. They live in a scarcity mentality, not an abundance mentality. And he is inviting you to live in an abundance mentality because he is a God of abundance. I'm gonna invite you to stand. I know we've got baptisms happening here in just a few and if you're getting baptized today, I would invite you just to head out those doors as soon as we start going into worship. But there's a quote by a man named Jim Elliott. Um, if, you, if you've been around church much at all growing up, you've probably heard this Jim Elliott quote at some point, but it is so profound because Jim Elliott is a man who goes to the Amazon. He's there long before David Pepper showed up, I can tell you that much. Like Jim Elliott was there reaching unreached people groups, much like they're still reaching today, but he's there reaching unreached people groups. And in one of those um, exploits into the jungle, his life is actually taken as a result of preaching the gospel. And he had made this statement long before that day had come because this was a principle that he lived by. And Jim Elliott said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. She is no fool to give that which she cannot keep to gain that which she cannot lose. That it would actually be the wisest thing Ever. It would be the most strategic thing ever. It would be the most forward-thinking thing ever. It's an abundance mentality that there is more than enough forever made available to me. And it's intended to shift the way we think about resources. So Jesus, as we 
lift up our voices in worship as we sing songs of declaration about who you are, about the power of your name. Would you remind us that you are all of those things now and forever? And that your invitation to us is to trust you with all of it. Would you teach us to be people who are generous? Would that generosity be rooted in gratefulness? And would it produce investments that last forever? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together, church. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.